0: Talking history. This is news talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender.
1: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The
2: strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As
0: one small step for man, one giant
1: leap for mankind. Augusto, Argus, Akoya.
0: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the symbolism of Stormont and what we can learn about Northern Irish politics from a study of the building, why the treaty is incorrectly blamed for partition. And to end the show, the lessons we can learn about leadership from looking at historical figures. You can email us your thoughts and views, history at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we assessed the legacy of Daniel O'Connell as we approached the bicentenary of his great civil rights campaign. And we debated how he should be remembered. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the symbolism and structure of Stormont. In recent weeks, we've seen the return of power sharing in Northern Ireland with Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill making history when she became First Minister. We also saw the restoration of the Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont. And to talk to me about the building of Stormont, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Suzanne O'Neill, who's Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin. She also teaches on the wonderful Trinity Access programme there. And she's written about the politics of neoclassicism in Dublin and Belfast, A Tale of Two Buildings. Sue, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. So, Stormont, very much in the news in the last uh, few days and weeks. Michelle O'Neill becoming uh, the first Sinn Féin, uh, first minister, uh, the return of power sharing in Northern Ireland. You know, this really was a dramatic time. So, I just... Let's, let's talk about Stormont because it's such a hugely imposing building. It's such a richly symbolic building and it's fascinating to actually see how so much of the history of Northern Ireland was kind of built into the construction of it.
1: Oh, absolutely, Patrick. Um, well, the Northern Ireland Parliament buildings um, were constructed between 1922 and 1932, right after the partition of Ireland and the formation of uh, the new Northern Ireland state. It's a neoclassical building, and these neoclassical forms absolutely represent the political oratory uh, of early mainstream unionism realised in stone. Um, Even the choice of site. Yeah, why not Belfast? Oh, well, there was lots of political uh, opposition from the Nationalists for it being in Stormont, away from Belfast. This is... um, the the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, the first uh, uh, Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Craig, Sir James Craig. Stormont is his vision. The longest letter he writes to the Cabinet Secretariat is about Stormont's gateposts. It's his absolute vision. It must be neoclassical. And he acts unilaterally. He wants it built on the old Stormont estate. He gets a personal bank loan of £3,000 and purchases the estate. And then goes to speak to uh, the Imperial Treasury because it's the Office of Public Works. It's Britain, the British government, who's paying for Stormont. Um, And he says, oh, I've bought this plot of land. Um, And they get a bit annoyed, really. Um, They've appointed um, Sir Arnold Thornley um, as the architect of of the new Parliament building. And they say, well, you're acting unilaterally here. And he says, oh, no, no, no. This is because uh, speed is of the essence. Uh, we are in a new state. We need to build our parliament. How quickly? This is the best place. The topography means Stormont has to face south on a hill, an elevation. Now, this could have been an accident, but I very much doubt it.
0: And Cray, of course, famously says that this was a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. And that's very much built into the, to the, to the site, the structure and the symbolism of how it's, how it's constructed.
1: Absolutely. Everything about this building um, expresses unionist power, um, unionist political ideals realised in stone. Uh, the great German philosopher Nietzsche said this, architecture is a form of oratory in forms. And this is what's going on at Stormont. Um, You've got this neoclassical building that's in a Greek revival style combined with, so you know, resonance of democracy. Um, it's, it, it's fused with Palladianism uh, But the sculptural decoration um, We have in the pediment um, Over the front entrance into uh, Stormont Which is the six columns supporting a triangular pediment We have um, an image, a personification of Ulster um, A female personification of Ulster Handing the flame of loyalty To a female personification of Britain, the crown and the empire And if you look, the building is facing south, right at the Free State. She is curving her arm around her garment to protect that flame of loyalty as she hands it to um, the personification of the Crown, Great Britain and the empire. And we wouldn't normally
0: have a classicist on to talk about Stormont. <laughs> and and the, But what's brilliant about your work is that you're showing how there are these classical connections that allow you to have these insights. So when you talk about it being neoclassical, is that that they were deliberately trying to imitate ancient Greece and Rome and make it look like it was one of these great, you know, buildings from, say, Athens or Rome or something?
1: Uh, oh, yes, yes. I mean, um Uh, classical building forms were the form of empire. And when you look when Stormont was opened in 1932, uh, the builder, which was, you know, uh, an architectural uh, journal at the time, says, you know, it's built in the Grecian form. Uh, This is the, the ideal form for a parliamentary house with all these resonances of democracy and what have you. Uh, what's interesting is, um, you you know, just returning to the sculptural forms, we've got um, the personification of Ulster handing um, the flame of loyalty to the personification of uh, Britain and the empire and crown. And above that, we have a huge statue of Britannia, um, you know, rural Britannia, um, looking very much like ancient Athena. She's almost as if, she's not static stood on it. She's almost as if she's stepping off. That attic. She's challenging the south. She's looking south. She's got two prowling lions. They're not just stood sort of very, very static at her side. They're prowling forward. They look like they're about to jump off the building. I think this can only be interpreted as a clear challenge to the Irish Free State.
0: A talented Irish free state. What I loved in your piece mm. was you looked into the Portland stone that was used uh, for the construction. And even that was, you know, hugely symbolic and meaningful.
1: Oh, my God. When you go and look at uh, the debates, because you have to remember there are 40 unionist MPs. Unionism is not fractured like it is now, you know, with different uh, branches of unionism. They all know what they want and they all know what they're against. And they're all behind Craig. And you look at this and that th- they say, we want it built in Portland Stone um, because, well, th- th- they sort of, Craig is disingenuous here. He blames when th- there's 40 unionist politicians and 12 nationalist Sinn Féin politicians. So Craig can pass anything he wants in the Northern Ireland Parliament because of this inbuilt majority. And when... They are challenged for the use of Portland stone. It's a beautiful stone. It's a wonderful stone to build with. There's no doubt about that. It's very expensive. It also comes from England, from the south coast of England. And we have the 12 nationalist MPs, Joe Devlin in particular. Um, he's the leader of the, uh, the nationalists in, in the new uh, Northern Ireland Parliament, saying, why are we using Portland stone? It's expensive. We have to ship it from Britain. We have our own wonderful Northern Irish stone. We have the Newry quarries. Why are we not using this? Um, He also says it's too big. Why are we building such a big Parliament house? You have to remember 1929, the Great Wall Street crash. There's a depression on. The housing situation in Belfast is very poor for all working class people, but especially uh, those of a nationalist persuasion. He says we could build 10,000 new homes. That will be a better reflection of, of this administration. But no, they want it in Portland Stone, um, and it's because it is British. It's the stone that Buckingham Palace is made of. It's the stone that all the World War One memorials are made of. All deeply important to, um, uh, you know, the Ulster unionist psyche.
0: Yes, it shows that their connection is with these great, uh, and the great buildings of empire in oh, in yes. Britain. You know, that's where we're, that's our link and our connection, not not a stone from the islands of Ireland.
1: Yes, and um, it's very interesting because there are a few sort of uh, unionist businessmen um, the ones who uh, own the uh, the quarries at Nury, um, who say, well, we should have this. But but what's really interesting is, um, and you have to remember, um, Arnold Thorne is designing the building, but Craig is continually sending him letters, continually in touch with him. It's Craig's vision. He influences how this building will look. And um, anyway, sort of Craig says, oh, you know, it's up to the imperial government if they want to pay for Portland Stone. But then when the imperial government say, the imperial treasury, I should say, say, well, we're not building the new law courts in Portland Stone or the Unionist Party object. And they say, well, we will even pay some money towards that. They want Portland Stone because you say it's the link with all the empire buildings. And and, uh, Hugh Pollock at one point says, London is being constructed in Portland Stone. So why shouldn't Mm. Belfast, you know, know, why shouldn't our our parliament building, why why shouldn't the law courts in Belfast be Portland stone like London? We are part of Britain. We are part of the British Empire. But they acquiesce and uh, uh, Newry stone is used for the base of the building. So here we have rusticated, unpolished Irish stone and on top of it is smoothly polished, well-dressed, Portland Stone. This has to be a metaphor for the civilising forces of empire over the Irish Gael, if you like. This is all unionist ideology at the time.
0: And James Craig himself, he dies in 1940. But he then becomes part of Stormont. And then, and as your work shows, that you know they they they're very clear. They want, and he wants that, that 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 this becomes his. He's buried there, and it becomes the there becomes almost like a shrine to him there.
1: Absolutely, um, they quickly um, pass. Uh, he dies in 1940. Um, um, he's not a well man, but still, they don't expect him to die as quickly as he does. But they very quickly pass through a, a Parliament Act where he can be buried at Stormont. Um, and this very much is part of a, a symbolic uh, claim to the territory. He, I mean, he's if you look at Stormont straight on, he's buried to the right of the building, the east side of the building. So if you like the side of the building that is closest to uh, the mainland UK. Um, his tomb, it's Portland Stone, of course, it faces the side door into Stormont, that uh, MPs would go in and out. So he's, if you like, planted in the grounds of Stormont, looking right in the doorway, because they wouldn't all, it was only on special ceremony occasions, they would all go up the, uh, uh, the front steps into, you know, where the main sort of ionic portico is. They would go in the side door for, for daily business. And he's looking straight at that. I mean it's absolutely um incredible really.
0: And then the statue of Carson as well, oh, you know, star- uh you know, such an imposing statue and such a, a a giant figure. You know, again it's the kind of the symbolism of, you oh, know, I what guess. the what Stormont represents and you know what it's what it's defending and uh, um, what it's fighting against.
1: Well, the, the statue of Carson Stormont's completed in 1932. Um it's opened by uh, the Prince of Wales. And Arnold Thornley gets his knighthood there and then, and uh, the statue of Carson, you know, famous leader of you know, uh, we we will not be uh, ruled by uh, the South, and also a Trinity College man, uh, famous for um, uh, uh, conducting the trial against Oscar Wilde, who he knew, I believe. Um, he very much, um, you know, again is another icon of unionism and the determination to stay part of Britain. But Edward Carson, the statue was put up in 1933. Um, It's a statue made by L.S. Merrifield. But there he is. He's very much um, an expressive personification of the Unionist challenge. He's in full oratory. And he is pointing south. There will be no home rule in Ireland. (sighs) He will (sighs) never be ruled by Dublin. Is it true
0: that the Irish tricolour can't fly over Stormont?
1: Uh, the Irish tricolour cannot fly over Stormont, but in uh, June twenty fifteen, um, there was some building work going on uh, on the roof, and somebody um, climbed up and put the Irish tricolour up there. And they also two two Irish flags went up the the, the Republic's tricolour, but also um, uh, a flag uh, that was a copy of the flag that uh, Pierce and Co had at the GPO, and they were up for several minutes before they were, they were taken down. And there was absolute um, uh, full-scale objection from unionist politicians because this is against the law. Um, the 1916 societies claimed responsibility for this heinous act. Uh, I think the flag was up for about six minutes, maybe seven minutes. Um, but now it can't. Um, and again, this is interesting, is it not, Um uh, and you think about um, the six columns, you know, on the main façade into Stormont are meant to represent the six counties that uh, constitute uh, the Northern Ireland state. All this symbolism is there. You can't fly the flag there. That's part of, um, that's in law. That's part of the Good Friday Agreement and moving forward.
0: And despite all the structure and all the symbolism, they now have Michelle O'Neill uh, walking forward confidently as First Minister, and that must be a, a real shock to the system. And uh, uh, I'm sure many many are spinning in their in their tombs.
1: Well, I I, I can't imagine what Craig would make of it. Um, I, I absolutely can't. I, but it is a historic moment, and and uh, the late Seamus Malin said in in. Um, uh, back in 1997, uh, you know, uh, this isn't exactly what he said, just to paraphrase, but he said, you know, this citadel of unionism is, is, is no longer fit for our situation. It should be consigned to a monument of the past. I do wonder if that will happen in the future. I can't see it, uh, but also I can't see any of these um, unionists, you know, and these are unionist symbols uh, from um, the, you know, first part of the 20th century, but still very relevant now. Um, I can't see them being taken down, but surely they're going to have to add some symbolism that represents um, nationalist um, uh, aspirations and culture to the building if it's to remain relevant and to be a building that represents the whole community of Northern Ireland.
0: And it really shows how you can study a building and you can tell so much about the the history of a, of a place and of the politics there from it because the other building that you looked at in your article was the GPO and again, fascinating story there about how that's reconstructed after the destruction of the rising.
1: Well absolutely, buildings can get new narratives um, but part of that new narrative, I mean, It was not, um, you know, 100% certain that the GPO would become um, ground zero for the remembrance of the 1916 um, rebellion uh, martyrs, if you like. It could have been Kilmain and it could have been Arbor Hill. But very quickly when it's constructed um, um, in the 1920s, they do actually consider that it will be made into a Catholic cathedral. Um, but that is um, not, not um, followed up and it, it does go back to being a post office, but it then also has this dual function of being a centre of commemoration, martyrdom and, and memory. So that has a new narrative. Part of that narrative is they took down from the pediments uh, the British Crown's coat of arms. That's above Stormont as well. Uh, the coat of arms is above the doorway. I, I can't see that being taken down, really.
0: There wasn't a fight to, to uh, rebuild the GPO with Portland Stone?
1: No, there wasn't. Uh, um, and, and I think this is what influenced nationalist politicians in the North in their arguments. But really, they were talking about the cost. They were thinking about um, working-class people who, who didn't have homes, who were working in the new re-quarries, um, who... who you know, uh, this is the biggest uh, building going up in Northern Ireland ever, I think, uh, or certainly one of them. I'm not sure about that, but but, but certainly this is a big building programme. Um, so why not use Northern Irish Stone? Now, the ideology, the symbolism matters more and I think that's very interesting. And the actual foundation stone of Stormont is Portland. So it's very symbolic heart. We're using the word symbolism a lot, but this is what's going on
0: here. Sue, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on. Uh, an absolutely wonderful uh, conversation that makes us all uh, look at Stormont uh, perhaps in a different way. Dr Susanne O'Neill, who's Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Classics at Trinity College Dublin, also teaches, as I say, on the wonderful Trinity Access Programme. And she uh, has written about the politics of neoclassicism in Dublin and Belfast. Sue, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you very much. Well we'll be back after the break as we talk to Joe Connell about that enduring misconception about how partition was created by the treaty and how it led to the Civil War and we'll also be finding out about the 1922 Constitution so stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History and I'm delighted to be joined now in studio by one of our regular contributors to the show. He's always been uh, such a wonderful guest when we have him, Joe Connell. He's a lawyer, historian and author. Uh, he's the author of The Shadow War, Michael Collins and the Politics of Violence, The Terror War, Dublin Rising, 1916 and more besides. Uh, he's always brought the events of the revolutionary decade 1912 to 1923 to life for us. And Joe, you're very welcome back. Oh, thank you, Patrick. It's always great to be here. Thank you very much. So today we are talking about the treaty and we're talking about partition. It's something that students study for the Leaving Cert and it's something that people love to talk about. But it is one of these big myths, isn't it? People always think, oh, it's the treaty that caused partition and the civil war then was about partition and that all of this. And there, there is real kind of confusion around the historical events of of 1921, 1922?
3: I think there's a lot of confusion. I think there's a lot of misinterpretation. I think you're exactly right. We we sometimes go from the decade of centenaries, uh, uh, the War of Independence, 1920, 21, and then we have the Civil War, and then we skip right over the, the period to the, um, the Constitution in 1937. But actually partition was made and came into effect from the Government of Ireland Act at the end of 1920, went into effect in the middle of 1921, And it was partition and particularly that Government of Ireland Act that created the necessary conditions for the Anglo-Irish Treaty which followed it. So when we think of the treaty and we think of partition, we often get confused of cause and effect. The partition enabled the treaty to be negotiated.
0: And how did they decide on the Northern Ireland border? How did they decide uh, where it was going to be and how many counties would be part of Northern
3: Ireland? The concept of partition was talked about throughout the early years of the 20th century. And in fact, it started out with the full nine counties of Ulster, then sometimes it was thought of as being four counties of Ulster, then it ultimately came out to be the six counties of of Northern Ireland of Ulster. That was what was put into effect in that Government of Ireland Act at the end of 1920. It stayed there, and it was supposed to be uh, changed perhaps by a boundary commission, which was one of the articles of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. They determined that, in fact, a Boundary Commission could be established and the Boundary Commission could have moved the treaty one way or another. It was very ambiguous, which is some of the reasons that it didn't do quite the job it was supposed to. But partition has stayed the same since that treaty. There's a very interesting fill to this, and that's that when the Boundary Commission came into effect in 1925, they actually recommended changes to the border moving a little bit of land north and a little bit of land south. This didn't sit very well with anyone, and certainly James Craig did not want any of this in the North. Remember his famously quoted as saying, "We'll sit on Ulster like a rock; we're not going to move anything." But what in fact happened was the Department of Finance here in the South made a suggestion to Cosgrave, who went to London, and they negotiated a treaty change. Actually, they took out Article Five, in which the uh, Irish Free State had to pay some of the war debt of the British government. And in fact, they, they absolved themselves of that, and then they kept the treaty in exactly the same way. But they knew there were going to be conflicts if this, this came out. So even consgrave when he came back, said that he wanted that new agreement to be, quote, burned or buried so that no one would know what happened. And it was buried. It was buried until about 1969, until anybody found out about it.
0: And, you know, earlier tonight we were talking about Stormont and, of course, there's the famous uh, Edward Carson statue there. And it it is a bit of an irony that Carson, who didn't want home rule for any part of Ireland, ended up being so closely associated with home rule for for the northern part of the island.
3: It's very, very true. Of course, Carson, of course, was born here in Dublin and he, he became very much of a unionist. As a matter of fact, when the partition came around, that was one of the reasons I think that, that Carson sort of stepped aside and James Craig moved into it, because it was not what Carson wanted, and it certainly was what James Craig and the Unionists at that time wanted. I don't think those here in the South really understood the, the depth of feeling in the North of the Unionists. I don't think that they understood that, that the Unionists were not, as James Craig, they were not going to give up any territory whatsoever. And I think that Carson does get sometimes associated with something that he would probably himself not like to have been associated with as time moved on. So why did this perception developed then that the Civil War was
0: about partition and that the, the treaty debates were about partition when in reality it didn't feature so much. Is it because the reality of, of arguing over oaths and uh, whether it was a republic in name or reality uh, is kind of maybe more complicated and confusing for people?
3: I think so. And I also think there was a great deal of difference between what was really important to the leaders and what was important to the people. The people looked at the partition. They could easily see this. They could see an Ulster that was going to be separated from the South. An oath is a very conceptual kind of a thing. It's very difficult to look to the the irish delegation when they went to london they really wanted to break if they were going to break on ulster but they let the the crown and sovereignty and the concept of a republic get conflated with the idea of ulster and they never really broke on on the on the ulster issue so when they came back partition was very important to the people but it wasn't important to them you you mentioned the fact that in the treaty debates it's extremely important if you look at the minutes of the treaty debates for example they're about 300 pages of uh, the minutes of the uh, public debates. And there are only about nine pages that even mention partition or even mention the North. And in the private debates, it's about the same. It's about 180 pages of minutes and there's only three pages. So it really was not a part of the debates. It wasn't important to the leaders, but it was very important to the people.
0: And why was there that blindside when it came to the North? It's almost as if Irish nationalists really had never been able to come to terms with the idea that there was people on the island who, who didn't share the same vision for the future and who had a different identity.
3: I think that's precisely correct. I think if you look at it, when, when, when you think about the North and and their absolute belief in unionism, the the Southern leaders did not not believe that. They thought that when the British left, that the Northern people would revert to an Irish nationalism, revert to an Irish uh, uh, allegiance, and they would willingly come into an all-Ireland parliament, which was really, if we look back now at the very time itself, but if we look back in retrospect, a hundred years later, that's a very naive opinion. It's an opinion that they found out it was very myopic as they went through the whole period of time. They just did not give enough credence to the the great and, and the very solid belief in the North of in their own unionism. So is there
0: any way there could have been a 32-county Irish free state at that time? Or do you think that some kind of partition was always going to be inevitable, that there was just no way the British would have conceded uh, giving them the, the, the
3: whole island? Well, remember, we always have three entities here and we kind of forget the entity of the North. I'm quite sure the British would have enabled it. I, I think that the British really felt that the Boundary Commission, for example, was not something to be permanent. They thought it might very well uh, go into effect and the the boundaries of uh, Fermanagh and Tyrone might come back, back to the South. They looked at it as as a very temporary kind of thing. James Craig was not going to do that. So when we look at the the Irish position and we look at the British position I think sometimes we forget the James Craig Unionist position which is very very important
0: What's your take on the Boundary Commission? I've never really fully understood it I've never I've never known whether it was something that genuinely could have uh, led to a a significant change or redrawing whether it was just a sop to to the negotiating team because certainly it seems that different assurances were being given to Craig and I wonder was it kind of like a con job from the
3: beginning? I think it probably was, I start to smile because if if the Irish delegation didn't really trust Lloyd George, the person, the most important person who absolutely did not trust Lloyd George was James Craig. He thought he was being sold out by the Boundary Commission. Uh, I don't think that at, at any time there was a chance that the Boundary Commission was going to really have a great effect. It was very ambiguous. It did not call for a particular plebiscite. It did not indicate the economic or the geographical conditions, which would change boundary limits. So I don't think that it was ever intended to really go through. But again, for Lloyd George, it got that particular issue off the table in the negotiations. It put them aside. It put them onto somebody else's table. It put them on the table of the North and uh, the the South, the, the free state. And for Lloyd George, it was very much of a win. Anything he could do to take the, quote, Ireland question or any part of the, quote, Ireland question off of the table suited him very, very well to his own constituency, the Liberal and the the Conservative Party there in in Britain. And one thing I always point out recently in, in talks and giving lectures is that we must understand that the Conservative Party, the real name of that party then, as well as now, is the Conservative and Unionist Party. And we forget that they were going to be very much in favor of James Craig's position.
0: Taking it on then to the 1922 Constitution, which is developed, it seems that that created problems with the British and in terms of some of the things that they were attempting to, to do there.
3: Collins always said, of course, that this is the freedom to achieve freedom that the treaty gave the, uh, the ability to uh, move a little bit. He talked to Kathleen Clark during the uh, treaty debates and he said, I don't expect you to vote for the treaty, but I just think that you will help me work it. And his concept was it was always going to change. When they submitted the 1922 Constitution to the British, it was very much of a Republican Constitution, and it was designed to be that way. Daryl Figgis was the primary drafter of it, but they tried to push back on the concessions that they would make to the British in the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations. For example, when they submitted the treaty to the British in May of 1922, it didn't have an oath to the king. And their initial draft did not have any uh, representative of the British government. The British, of course, immediately threw that out. And Lloyd George said it was the creation of a Republican name only, and it was never going to work in that fashion. So the Constitution, while I think it was an extraordinarily good document, it's a a brilliant document to read, um, it was not meant to do the kinds of things that Collins and Griffith wanted to do, and they ultimately had to accept some of the, the British concessions because, again, the British did not want to give away their concessions they had made in the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations.
0: And maybe it was an attempt to offer an olive branch to the anti-treaty people as well to show that uh, we could make this, this new arrangement work for
3: everyone. It was intended, I think, uh, to be more even than an olive branch because you have someone like Liam Lynch, for example, who was writing to his brother saying, we think we can get the Republican aspects of the Constitution. And if we do, we'll all be A1 again. So had they been able to do this, it certainly would have taken an awful lot of the sting out of the anti-treaty side. They would not have been able to claim as much duress as they did before it simply wasn't re- realistic for them to do that. And what do you think went wrong?
0: Was it just the the innate conservatism of those who who ended up uh, taking taking power after the Civil War?
3: I think that's one part of it. Certainly, I think that's a, a, a very a, a grave kind of a situation when you're having juries act very quickly. You're having acts to prohibit women from taking the civil service very quickly. Uh, in, in fairness, we have to take a look at this a little bit. Remember, all six women in the uh, Doyle voted against the treaty. So they may not have been in the best graces of the government at the time. In addition, uh Kamen-Aman and some of the other individuals were going to the jurors in trials and telling them they should acquit just all of the people who were on the Republican side. So I think that there was some pushback from the women. But the fact of the matter is it was very much of a paternalistic kind of society at the time. And the individuals who were in office simply wanted to move women out of it, and I think it was very, very misogynistic. Some of the laws at the time were very misogynistic at the time.
0: And you don't really see a social shift in those years after the the Civil War.
3: No, we really don't. I sometimes ask, uh, how much did how much did life change for the docker or the worker uh, at at uh, Jacobs or or anybody else here uh, from 1921 and 1923? In 1923, there were 800,000 people living in tenements in in Dublin and throughout Ireland. How much did their life change? Um, It's very often said uh, rather dismissively, but the only thing that was done was that they painted the post boxes green instead of red. But in many cases, that's absolutely true.
0: What about Michael Collins then and his vision for Ireland fitting into the modern world after the treaty? What did he want to see happen?
3: Collins was once asked by a, a visiting American senator that, that now that you've won your military uh, independence, now that you're an independent country, how do you think that you can proceed and Collins's answer was that if Ireland produces products that the world will ask for at the time that they ask for them, at the price that they will pay for them, and if we do so with the pursuit of excellence, then that's how Ireland will find its place in the world. It was a very prescient kind of statement. If you look now at Ireland with the, the concepts of pharmaceuticals and IT and everything, that's exactly what they are doing to export to the, the, the markets of the world. It's hard to say about Collins in the sense that uh, when we asked the what ifs, I, I don't know if Collins would have stayed as a, a politician for very long. You and I have spoken for years about Collins. You know, was He a, He said he was a soldier, he wasn't a politician. And my view is he, he was really neither one. He was a, a, a world-class CEO of an independent kind of a country. I, I'm not sure he would have stayed as a politician. Uh, I, I think he might have had other interests. But his view of how the Irish Free State should proceed was very prescient at the time.
0: That's very interesting that Collins may not have, you know, tried to, to follow, uh, you know, he wouldn't have emulated de Valera and been still around in his 60s and 70s and 80s and beyond that he might have done other things. How do you think he would have acted towards Northern Ireland? Because there's always that suspicion that he would have tried to undermine the new, the new jurisdiction and that he would have tried to, to destabilise it.
3: He, th- 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 it's not a suspicion; it's it's an absolute fact. He was getting weapons, for example, from the British to to arm the new Free State Army, and he was trading those. Strangely enough, with the people in the forecourts, knowing his those weapons would be traceable, so they took the weapons from the forecourts and put them up into the north. Collins was very involved in a sort of a rising which didn't come about in May of 1922. It fell apart. He he was paying uh, his policy was to pay teachers in the north. He was involved in. Uh, taking hostages in the North. He was very, very involved in, in in trying to work out some way to bring the North around. It was not going to work. He was not going to have a, uh, a guerrilla war in the North as he had it down here. That was simply not going to work because at a time, Collins was the only one of the signatories to the treaty who even mentioned partition in his statement in the Doyle debates. I think that Collins would have tried very, very hard and maybe one of the things that we could look to to see if, if that's different than anything else is within a week after his death at Bale-Nabla at the end of August of 1922, the Cosgrave government let everybody in the North know, we're no longer going to give any money to the North. We're no longer going to send weapons to the North. We're no longer going to support the North. We're simply going to get the free state government going. So anything that was done prior to that time was really on Collins' own bat. And I don't know where he would have gone with it. I don't know how successful it would have been.
0: But it could have actually destabilized things with Britain if, uh, if this had continued into the 19, late 1920s.
3: Collins did a lot of things that, that we look at now as as being destabilizing. Um, I think in, in many ways he still was that young man that we should look back on. And maybe he he made a lot of decisions and did a lot of things that we look at and wonder exactly how well thought out some of those things were.
0: How do you look back now on the decade of centenaries? Like, So you personally did a huge amount and other historians as well doing so much to to engage with the public. Do you think it was a a, a good time in terms of how we
3: commemorated things and how we engaged with the past? I, I, I do. I really do. I remember in 2016, 2015, I was giving talks to, for example, secondary students. And it was amazing to me how many of them did not really understand what the rising was or did not understand where the decade of centenaries was leading them. But I got many, many emails coming back to me after giving those talks from people saying, you mentioned my grandmother, you mentioned my grandfather. I didn't know that, but I went back to my family and I found out more information upon it. I think it was just an, an absolute epiphany for the, for the, for the state, really. They, they really went back to take a look at their own history that developed, and many of the people didn't understand it. But the decade of centenaries and everything way it all followed through was really very, very valuable.
0: Well, the wonderful Joe Connell. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. Always a pleasure. And we'll be back with more on Talking History right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. To end the show tonight, we're looking at a new book which challenges the received wisdom that history's great leaders were individuals with a proclivity for action and brash words. And what emerges is an entirely new narrative on leadership. The book is called The Unseen Leader, How History Can Help Us Rethink Leadership. It's published in paperback by Springer. The author is Martin Gutman, And Martin, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Can you tell us about the idea behind the book and why you as an historian decided to write it?
2: Yeah, so I got my PhD in history, but through a series of quirks, like many of us have in our careers, I ended up working at uh, business schools, and I still do. And as soon as I started working at a business school, I obviously became aware of the hype around leadership. It's something everybody likes to study, everybody wants to be a good leader. And I noticed that there are actually a lot of texts about leadership that try to extract wisdom from the past, but they don't always conform to the findings that professional historians have come to. So I wanted to write a book about leadership, but using the tools and using the perspectives of historical sciences
0: and you use this term the action fallacy to explain how how we think about successful leaders in in a in a really kind of simplistic way that we look at the great action moments Churchill delivering his great speeches for example but we're kind of missing the nuances and we're missing the reality of what makes a great leader
2: exactly so as you stated very nicely i think we have this mistaken belief which i call the action fallacy that the best leaders were those that made the most noise, uh, who were very action-oriented, faced the gravest uh, moments of crisis. And what many professional historians will say is that the people who are the most influential are not always the ones who are the loudest. They're not always the ones who faced the gravest challenges, quite often because they were very good at avoiding a crisis or certainly exacerbating a crisis. And so Churchill's a good example. He's one of the characters I profile in the book. He was very action-oriented. You know he, he hounded his generals to be on the offensive. He gave brilliant speeches that used very, you know kind of vivid and brash rhetoric. But those things are not necessarily the secret to his success. There were a lot of things he did behind the scenes that really facilitated the Allied victory in Europe in the war.
0: And you also don't shy away from the fact that he also made crucial mistakes during the war the war years. So it wasn't as if it was a perfect kind of leadership either.
2: No, not at all. And I think you raise an important point in general, which is that none of these leaders that I profile, and this is true for many historical leaders, should be romanticized or idealized. I mean, Churchill was a very problematic figure, was involved in some of the, you know, worst crimes of British imperialism. And um, so that needs to be acknowledged, and I don't suggest we put him on a pedestal. However, he was, more than anyone else, the architect of Allied victory in the Second World War. The Second World War is perhaps the most challenging episode any leader has faced, and therefore I think he's an important person to examine in a book that looks at leadership from a historical perspective. But yes, he did make a lot of mistakes in the war itself, And in fact, often his mistakes were driven by his uh, urge to be more action-oriented, to kind of go on the offensive, let's say prematurely, uh, and being a bit more, waiting a bit longer may have served him better.
0: It's a great title, The Unseen Leader. What point are you making with that title?
2: Well, exactly the point that truly gifted leaders are often, uh, you know, invisible to some extent because... Because they mitigate dramatic circumstances, because they enable their followers and their teams to work effectively and and with less friction, they're a bit harder to spot. Uh, So one example that I highlight in the book as well is that, um, you know, Roald Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer, was by any metric the most successful explorer who has ever lived he achieved all four of the major polar goals, North and South Pole, Northeast and Northwest Passage. Three of those he was um, one of the first to accomplish. However, he's rarely featured in books about leadership. Instead, some of these British, um, you know, explorers, Shackleton and Franklin and Scott are preferred. And part of this uh, is the fact that they uh, ran into so much trouble and they were very good at self-promoting. So, We immediately see them if we look back on historical records, in the newspapers, in the books they published. And Amundsen is, um, I mean, he's there, but he's a bit harder to spot. What you do spot, however, if you look carefully, is that his stories, his expeditions, make for boring reading, but they were very successful.
0: You picked four main historical characters for your study and you mentioned one of them there. It's a fascinating list because you didn't go for obvious names, okay, maybe Winston Churchill, okay, but you also went for a Haitian revolutionary leader. You went for Gertrude Bell, who, you know, was perhaps a less obvious choice. He could have gone for Lawrence of Arabia, but Gertrude Bell actually, in some ways, was a a more significant or at least as significant a figure when it came to the Middle East.
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in deciding who to profile, that's, that's you know definitely a challenge for any author and for a historian. There are a lot of candidates who can make it on this list as unseen or in the case of Churchill, you know, a misunderstood uh, historical figure. I definitely wanted to get a bit of a, a geographic spread and also spread in terms of the time periods. But what was important to me as well is that um, I, as the researcher could read the primary sources um, that are relevant for this person. So I think there's a lot of interesting characters in early Chinese history that that I could have profiled, um, and also um, some Arabian explorers that would fit the bill as these unseen leader types, but there I lacked the language skills to properly uh, study them. And so that reduced the, the types of people I could profile. And with that said, as as you correctly said, I I looked at Toussaint Novartis, who was the leader of the only successful slave revolt in history on what would later become Haiti, uh, an absolutely fascinating period where he's able to free, you know, these, these oppressed peoples on a territory that was France's most lucrative colony. So this is something France fights very hard against, including Napoleon, the British and the Spanish get involved. So it's a very complex challenge that he manages to solve and doesn't feature regularly in historical record. Yeah, and then Gertrude Bell, who was in some ways the, the real Lawrence of Arabia in terms of impact in the post-World War I Middle East, and Amundsen, the explorer, and Churchill.
0: And I'm curious to know who didn't make your final four, because I'd say you had a, a lot of fun, even with the, the, the language issues. I'm sure that you had maybe a, a short list of maybe 10, maybe a long list of 20 or 30. So who are the people who came close to being included?
2: So Frances Perkins was um, a, a woman I, I did read up on quite extensively.
0: The, the Labour secretary the- in the United States? That is correct, yes.
2: And, you know, she was very influential in Roosevelt's New Deal, and also during the war in mobilizing uh, the American labor force for this, um, you know, massive industrial effort putting the U.S. on a war economy. So she was definitely somebody who, in the background, played a critical role. And um, then I had also thought about some other Uh, early revolutionaries, but Toussaint was such an obvious choice, Toussaint Novarture, I decided to forego some of the other revolutionaries. Um, There's also some political leaders, leaders in social movements, Gandhi, uh, etc., that are, of course, absolutely fascinating, but in some cases, they've already been uh, studied quite extensively, and that makes them less attractive um, to re-examine again in a book.
0: Did you find any examples where the action fallacy wasn't a fallacy, that in, in a particular case that uh, that image was the correct one or that the, the, the gung-ho attitude was the right one?
2: Oh, absolutely. I don't mean to suggest that you know, a lively, um, you know, very forceful response is always the wrong way to go. If your house is on fire or the equivalent uh, in your you know, company or your country, That's probably not the time to sit around and deliberate. You know, you got to get going and do something about it. Um, But what the action fallacy tells us is that an active and vociferous response is not always the right response for a leader, and it's not the only quality that a good leader has. And so certainly, you know, in in Amundsen's case, uh, his expeditions, as I said, were often, you know, very boring because he had planned very carefully, had chosen the right people, made the right decisions so there were very few you know kind of dramatic moments but there was uh, was one moment where a fire broke out in the ship right near the uh, petroleum tanks and there of course he flew into a frenzy and uh, got his men and himself to address it immediately and no questions asked that was the right right response in that moment
0: do you have a, a problem with some of these management leadership books, which delve into historical anecdotes to, to make their case, but perhaps brush over the nuances and they perhaps give an incorrect reading of the past for, for their readers?
2: Um, I
0: appreciate
2: all of these books. And I actually think history is a very good way to learn about leadership because um, there's a few advantages that we have with history. One is that for contemporary events, very often the necessary sources to f- truly understand what happened, what decisions were made and why, are not yet available. Because they are, um, you know, in terms of government sources, these are not in the archives yet. They're still um, secret or inaccessible. Uh, and very often the people who work with these leaders, let's take Elon Musk, I mean, we can already say a lot about his leadership, but I think it will be easier in 10, 20 years when the people who work for him now have you know, written memoirs, they're no longer so dependent on him. We can also see the long-term implications of the choices he has made. So I think history is a very good lens onto leadership. But with that said, um, you know, the quality differs, I think, there is a lot of contextualization. there's a lot of nuance to historical events that you know ideally should be taken into account when trying to extract
0: leadership lessons. The Gertrude Bell profile is fascinating. And what do you think are the challenges that women leaders have faced in the past? And do you think they face similar challenges today?
2: Um, I mean, quite obviously, when she lived, uh, you know, 100 years ago, she could not take on any formal leadership roles because those were not assigned to women. And so in, in some sense, whether she wanted to or not, she had to resign herself to being what I call an unseen leader, leading from behind the scenes, influencing people in more subtle ways. Um, now, is that challenge still there today? I, I would suggest that things have gotten better. We do have you know women who are CEOs and, and heads of states, but Uh, Even last year, with the resignations of some very prominent um, prime ministers, we hear that they suffer a level of abuse, a level of scrutiny that um, most men in such positions don't face. So I would say we still have a long way to go.
0: And in terms of this unseen element, what would you recommend for someone who wanted to succeed, whether in business or in politics or in academia or in anything to do with leadership, whether it's a local group or whatever, that, that what would be your recipe for success based on the way you have studied leadership?
2: the main recommendation that comes out of my book is less for leaders themselves and more for the people who are in a position to promote or reward or recognize leaders so let's say the you know hiring committees higher uh, level of management and the 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 insight is this that The people in your teams or in your organizations who make the most noise, who always find themselves in a crisis, may not necessarily be the ones who are actually creating the most value, who are having the most positive influence in your team or organization. So it's really a challenge to look for leadership qualities in people beyond those who are the loudest. Interestingly, you know, I'm a historian, I looked at this through my lens as a historian, There's a lot of studies in the past 10 years in organizational psychology uh, that confirm the action fallacy, though they don't use this term. So, for example, um, there's a study out of uh, University of Binghamton in the the U.S. that suggests that whoever speaks the most, regardless of what they actually say, will be perceived as the leader in that situation. Uh, So, I think we can all challenge ourselves to be a bit more nuanced, be a bit more careful in attributing leadership effectiveness than merely looking for those who are making the most noise.
0: Well, Martin, it's a fascinating study. It's called The Unseen Leader, How History Can Help Us Rethink Leadership, published in paperback by Springer. The author, Martin Gutman. And Martin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.